Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. When I was your age, television was called books. And you hear the urge of Jesus in his voice. Jesus. Now, you listen to me, boy. Jesus is a fact. You can't run away from Jesus. Now, you listen. I've come a long way since I believe in anything. And I come halfway around the world. No, you ain't come so far that you could keep from following me, though, have you, boy? Some preachers left his mark on you. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Welcome to the Book Exchange Podcast. My name is Jude Joseph Lovell, co-founder of this podcast. This is the show where the twin Virgils take you on a guide to all places and all things literary having to do with books and reading. It's good to have you here. I'm going to welcome in my co-host and co-founder, John Lovell. John, greetings. Hey, what's up, Jude? And hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Yep, and we were, so this is episode 47, and we were literally debating what we were going to call this episode up to the very last second here <laughs> before we went to recording. Uh, right. I am, I am going to, I'm going to call it, my title is clunky, John was pushing back a little, so I'm going to take the hit if we, you know, lose 50% of our listeners. <laughs> but uh, this episode, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna make the call as a, as a good leader. This episode is called "Novels with Spiritual Journeys," um, but it definitely includes books that have to do with um, spiritual themes or spiritual awakenings, or however you want to take that. But we're discussing primarily novels today, in which some kind of spiritual journey occurs. John, can can you live with that? Absolutely. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I guess it's just. By nature of, this is going to be an interesting topic. I just, just by nature of the topic, you know, it's, it's fairly nebulous. Just the whole notion of what a, a spiritual journey is or a spiritual <clears throat> progression is, or even what a spirit is. So I guess there's some, you know, ambiguity around this topic. On the other hand, John, just to, by way of introduction here, this is in a way a topic that we've kind of, commented on a few many times already in the course of this two-year podcast and we've definitely kind of been circling around an episode that has to do with you know uh journey of the spirit in some way or um progression of the spirit in some way so you know in some ways it's already familiar to some of our listeners and then this is an episode that was kind of inevitable you know wouldn't you say yeah i would totally say that you're right. I mean, I think, you know, we sort of touch on themes that are going to come up in this episode a lot in the course of this show. I mean, really, the one thing I would say, because I've been thinking about it a lot, too. And number one, you you know, by, by its very nature, it's nebulous 
and vague and hard to pin down. And that's just the way it is. And, you know, we're fine with that. The other thing is, you know, you could say that any drama involves some kind of transformation or any story, you know, for the characters involved. So that, you know, that's one way you could be very, very vague and, and broad with your definition. But I think we are talking more about, like you say, you know, like stories in which or fiction in which the, the main character or the characters involved, you know, experience some kind of, you know, what we'll call spiritual transformation or some kind of evolution of the spirit. Uh, and that, you know, the stories we'll be talking about today kind of deal explicitly, at least in my mind, it deal explicitly with some sort of spiritual question or questions or spiritual themes. So that's, that's how I would kind of explain it. But uh, anyway, I think that's, that should be clear enough for our listeners. Yeah. And, and we're kind of in a way we're, but I let us here, we're stepping on my setup question for later in the episode, but that's okay. Let's take care of it here really quickly. You know, cause I was going to ask you as a way of kind of entering the topic and then you just given, you know, I think your basic definition of kind of what a spiritual journey even is, at least in the context of literature and then just adding on to, and you know, you threw some light on it there just now adding on to it a little bit for me, like I was trying to think of what, a, what do we mean by a spiritual journey or even a spiritual progression or transformation, you know, cause in the, in some of the titles that I'm going to bring up today, you know, for us, we come at it from John, as our listeners know, from like a Catholic sort of Judeo Christian background. And a lot of our favorite stories in this vein have that kind of, you know, um, you know, are, are flavored by that or have that kind of uh, those elements in there. But for me, there's a couple that aren't necessarily either a Catholic journey or a Christian journey, or you might not even really describe it in Christian terms. And so then I was thinking about what a spiritual journey is. And, and, and you were starting to say it like for me in literature, it's, it, you know, it has something to do with some kind of uh transformation or transformative progress on the on the part of one or more characters that they start at kind of like place a and they end up not necessarily a place b but even kind of place you know q or r or s you know like they they go through kind of a yeah a real whole you know i guess journey you know like you you, you sort of struggle for words sometimes describing this in which something fundamental shifts in them in one way or another you know so that's like some of the books on my list are kind of like that, not necessarily from a Christian perspective, but something happens of a transformative nature, you know? So I don't know if you want to add any more thoughts to that. And then I did have one administrative thing I wanted to say, but then, you know, we can jump right into it, which is good because we have a lot of books that we wanted to discuss. Yeah. I'll just add in a few other thoughts. And I, you know, I, I basically agree with what you're saying. And, and, you know, I think most people, recognize what we're talking about in that, you know, um, we're talking about uh, kind of big questions, you know, like it doesn't necessarily, as you said, have to be explicitly Christian or Judeo-Christian themes. It could be more, but, the, but, but, you know, questions of a, of a deep nature, kind of like, you know, why are we here? Why do we exist? What is the purpose of life? What is my particular purpose? And, you know, uh, I think we're talking about, we're kind of, casting a broad net here to include, you know, books that grapple, at least, again, in my, my way of seeing it, 
explicitly grapple with some of these questions. And, you know, you can come at these questions from all kinds of angles. Um, but I think you'll see that as kind of a common theme, you know, where characters are sort of grappling with those big types of questions of life, the universe and everything, you know, um, and in some, and, and the story in some way, you know, charts a growth or an evolution or a change, you know, in the way a character or characters see the world. They may be motivated by their own intellectual pursuits or interests, or they may be motivated by circumstances that put them in, you know, uh, life-changing situations. But nonetheless, you know, any kind of novel that gravels that grapples with this type of question, why are we here? What is the meaning of our lives? You know, how do we find purpose? I think is fair game for this kind of discussion. Yeah, yeah, and it really and these types of books have populated our personal reading between the two of us, kind of all along the way. So that's why I say again, going back to the beginning, that this is kind of an episode we've really been kind of dancing around and really talking about in a way all along, you know. So yeah, and I, I just throw in. I'm sorry, cut you off. One last point is that these are questions that you know scientists and philosophers grapple with as well. You know, you don't have to be, you don't necessarily have to be a quote unquote religious person, obviously to ask and ponder these questions. And many, many people come at them from different angles other than religion. So it's not, this is not an episode about religious fiction. It's, it's broader than that. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That's, that's putting it, that's putting it well, like a good example from the film universe. We talk all the time about the Coen brothers. And I think that their films are very spiritual films. A lot of them are in a lot of ways, but they're not very religious people. You know, exactly. I think they just yeah. take on, I really think they take on a lot of spiritual questions. And in some of their movies, it's fairly explicit, like a serious man, but that's just, you know, that's another topic, but, but yeah, the way you were talking about it there is really what we're talking about here. And it, and it may not be the most popular episode in the world and that's fine, you know, but it, uh, but this is really for the two of us, you know, this is like hewing pretty close to the bone of what we're doing much of the time when we're reading. So in a way we had to prepare in a way we didn't have to prepare. We've kind of been, it's been there on the fringe for all the discussions we've been having all along in a way. Yeah. You know? And I think, I think if people trip at all, it'll be over the word spiritual. You could almost use the word existential. You could use the word philosophical, uh, you know, um, but again, you know what? Our thoughts are going to be informed by how we came up and what our particular worldview is. But but uh, just so that everybody is aware that it, it's not narrowed to one specific way of answering those questions. Right. Well, that's a good place to stop in terms of introductory commentary. Now, I just want to say, I say this all the time on the podcast, but I would like to just take a minute to issue another call for feedback. And what we're doing now, I don't know why we didn't do this from the beginning, but what we're doing now is rather than me messing up the site or the email address or whatever it's that. So the email address and the website are in every description of the episodes kind of from here forward. We really didn't do that before. I don't know why we had it. We had it on our anchor site. We didn't have it in the description of the website, which goes out on all the streaming um, services. So, Please, by all means, if you would like to send us feedback, you will find the website that we use and you will find the email address that we use in order to give us some feedback. Anything that is on your mind from any episode, please feel free to use those uh, me 
means of communication. You should be able to find them in every description going forward. So I just wanted to say that, um, John, is there anything else you want to cover on other cover other otherwise we'll do this to a little music. We'll come back. We'll talk about the books we're reading. Nope. I think that sounds perfect. All right. then john we're going to follow the usual format i'd like to hear about book the the book that you are reading right now so take it away well i'm coming close to the end of a book that i have been reading for the purposes of this discussion that we're about to have um it's a second time reading it for me it's a novel by uh the great german writer herman hesse and it's called narcissus and goldman and it is definitely going to come up in our discussion in a little bit so i'm i really don't need to go into it at length now, but like I said, my second time through it, really interesting novel. You know, I look forward to kicking that around with you a little bit in uh, just a few minutes. Yeah, that's a really good one. So, and we're, and we both have opinions on that. And fortunately we both read it within the last couple of years. Thanks to you, by the way, because you're the guy that discovered it um, in our little twofer. But um, yeah. And for me, I'm, I'm kind of, this is like the, the reading equivalent of getting caught with like your shorts pulled down or something like that, because I happen to be, <laughs> I happen to be reading one of my own novels, which is, uh, you know, if, if we could do that, like Price is Right, sad trombone sound, if we had the technology for that, somebody could play that behind my comments right now, you know, um, but I'm going to, I am not, you know, have no fear, folks. I'm not going to talk about my own book at length today, but I have, I've written two novels that, have spiritual journeys in them, in my opinion, or I intended them to have spiritual journeys in them. One of them is unpublished and has never really been discussed. And one of them is uh, a novel that I published for young readers called Obsidian. It'll come up later. I am rereading re this book because it's been a number of years, but I, it's a book where I sort of intended, and I know that's fraught with danger, but I, I intended the protagonist of my book to indeed undertake some kind of transformative spiritual journey. So I'm rereading it in order to try to refamiliarize myself with what I tried to do there. And it's interesting because it's been, it has been a number of years since I read it, but uh, we'll get into that later. So that's what I'm reading. And um, yeah, let's not even take a break, John. I, you know, originally I was just going to ask you kind of what you make of what a spiritual journey means to you and we kind of talked about it in the intro there and then each of us share long lists with each other of books that we are thinking about and there's many titles and they're rather diverse and i think you have which is often the case in our show i think you have some more top titles that you were hoping to get to maybe than i do i, I tend to narrow it down to four or five but i have a long sort of backup list so um I'm going to ask you to start us off 
what is the first book that you'd like to bring up in which a character or more characters undergo some kind of transformative spiritual journey? Well, that's fine. And, and before I actually get to my sort of first selection, uh, I mean, number one, you're right. I mean, I, once I started thinking about this topic, I mean, literally the titles just started, you know, in, a, in an unusual way, even for this podcast. And that may sound strange to people who listen to this because we tend to have a lot of selections from all over the place. But it was like, you know, a large, you know, like a dam had been opened or something. And just, you know, titles just started flooding into my mind. And I think, as we've already touched on, I think part of that is, you know, my background, my interests, as I've said before, um, I, I enjoy really anything that grapples with philosophical or spiritual questions or themes. And so, of course, my, my, my reading, you know, most of my life has been, you know, flavored by that or fueled by those interests. So, you know, uh, not to mention, you know, what we've already mentioned being raised in a, in a, in a religious house in a Catholic house and, and an intellectual house, which sounds haughty, but just meaning like both of our parents were big readers and, you know, uh, thinkers. So that's just kind of how we grew up. So it, it's inevitable that my own reading list would be flavored by that. And, you know, uh, some, some very obvious titles, you know, came to my mind that I'll just mention because they could easily be discussed on this list. Anything from, you know, this is really, really on the nose, but, you know, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is an obvious, you know, it's a poem, uh, English poem from uh, several centuries ago that describes, you know, that sort of allegorizes the, the quote unquote Christian spiritual, spiritual journey. You know, you think of Dante's famous, you know, trilogy of epic poems, you know, Inferno, Purgatorio and Paradiso, you know which literally charts a, you know, a, a spiritual journey through uh, into the uh, afterlife. <laughs> um, you know, obviously the Lord of the Rings can be read as a, as a long spiritual journey, various books of C.S. Lewis, you know, the list goes on and on. So there are many kind of obvious titles that many people could think of that may not necessarily come up on today's discussion because we don't want to, we don't want to just, you know, focus on either titles that have been, been talked about ad infinitum or, you know, uh, you know, from the ones that are familiar to everybody. I guess where, where I would like to start is the book that I just mentioned, you know, which is called Narcissus and Gold, Goldwind, again, by a writer named Herman Hesse. Um, and, you know, he himself, you know, so for those who don't know, you know, he, he was writing in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, he ended up winning the Nobel Prize for Literature, I think, in the 1950s. Um, his books were, were very popular before the Second World War. And then he kind of fell out of popularity for a while uh, for some obvious reasons. I mean, he's writing from Germany, so that would be one, you know, at least in terms of America and the Western world. You know, he sort of fell out of popularity, popularity a little bit. But then his books, you know, famously kind of got more famous during the 1960s and got, you know, became popular again. Books like uh, Siddhartha or a book called Damien or The Glass Bead Game or a book called Steppenwolf in particular got very popular again in the 1960s. And part of the reason for that. So all of his almost all of his novels deal with spiritual themes and he himself was very interested in, you know, mythology and spirituality. And, you know, he got increasingly interested in Eastern philosophy and, and religions. So many of his books are kind of flavored with 
you know, Siddhartha being an obvious example, which sort of, you know, tells the story in a way of, of, of uh, someone who finds enlightenment much like the Buddha uh, through Eastern philosophy. So, you know, Herman has said that all of this is to, say, is to say that he's very well known for writing novels of spiritual themes. Um, Narcissus and Goldman, though, is, is an interesting title in his catalog from what I understand because it's set in the Middle Ages and it's a story of a friendship between two monks. Well, one is a monk, one is an older, more experienced monk in a monastery in the Middle Ages in Germany. And another one is a young novice monk who enters the monastery and is kind of, um, you know, he's, you have to, it has to be said from the beginning, he's like strikingly good looking, you know, he's very like a beautiful person. And this comes up again and again in the book. Um, but he immediately becomes, you know, sort of a, he, he forms a bond with this um, more experienced intellectual studious monk that's Narcissus and the, and the young monk is named Goldman. And, you know, in this day and age, especially you kind of, you know, uh, you would expect maybe there's some kind of um, homosexual relationship there that's explored, but it's really not a friendship on that level at all. It's more of an intellectual friendship and just kind of a, they're kindred spirits in a way. And then the novel kind of tells a story of this sort of relationship, but um, fairly early on in, in the novel, Narcissus, the more, intellectual, more experienced monk, you know, tells Goldman after he gets to know him, he's like, this, this is not a place for you. You're much more of a freewheeling spirit and I, you won't be happy here. And uh, this upsets Goldman very much, but he sort of sets him on this journey into the world where he goes out into the world and, you know, the novel kind of charts, charts his, you know, journey as he explore, he has a number of sexual experiences. And, and this comes up because, again, he's a very charismatic, handsome person. And he just, you know, women are attracted to him. And so in the beginning of the novel, this is, it describes a lot of his sort of sexual experiences. And I remember the first time I read it, I was sort of frustrated because I thought the whole book would be like that. But then, you know, a, many many things happen to him along the way he gets he he meets with a uh, someone who's an artist a master craftsman and he realizes he has a gift for expressing himself artistically specifically through sculpture and drawing so part of the book is you know the emergence of this you know realization that he has a special gift for for creating art and then there's a long section of the book where he uh, uh, the plague hits Germany. So he goes from town to town and he experiences all kinds of tremendous and just wretched suffering, you know, in some places very graphic, um, where, you know, people are dying from the plague and he, you know, it all kind of becomes fodder, not just for his art, but for his own um, intellectual and spiritual journey. And he, and he's kind of grappling with, you know, the reality of this much suffering in the world. And eventually in the novel, he, he makes his way back to the monastery where he started and um, kind of has a reunion with Narcissus. So that's sort of the, the broad strokes of the novel. But it, it's just, a, you know, this is my second time reading it. It's just a fascinating, uh, you know, um, but as we've been saying, it's sort of fascinating spiritual journey where you watch this this person, kind of this young man kind of grapple with, you know, the desire for something greater in a spiritual life and the desire to perhaps be holy, but also the, de the desire to experience the world and all of its pleasures 
in almost like a hedonistic way. And so the, the whole novel is sort of a tension between those two sort of pullings in this young man's life. And um, it's just full of very vivid and descriptive prose, but it asks all kinds of fascinating questions. And I just found, you know, I think the style could be not for everybody um, because he writes in a very sort of like, the best word I can think of is kind of a sensual way um, in a very poetic way. I think that could try the patience of some readers, but to me, you know, almost every other page of this novel brings up a question that I found to be really, really interesting. And it really gets to the heart of not only what it's like to try to grapple with, um, you know, uh, greater spiritual questions, but also to how to create art and how to live a life that has meaning, not just for yourself, but for others. So, Sorry, that was a lot of talking, but that would that would be the way I would sort of sum up my experience with Narcissus and Goldman. And I know I know you've read it, so I don't know if you have any kind of comments you want to throw in there. No, well, you I mean, you summarize it pretty well in a book that's not none of these are terribly easy to summarize, you know. So, you know, just by in general, we'll sort of get to what we can get to. But, yeah, I think I think, one, uh, you know, for me, I, I really liked the book, too. You read it. You were really struck by it. Uh, you gave it to me. I think you gave it to me. Yeah. Um, and then I read it and I was really struck by it too. And it, it went very high on my list that year that I read it. And I think, you know, a few things just to add to your comments, but like, uh, you know, some people would be put off by, um, you're right. Cause it, you know, the, those, the two men in the book have like a very kind of close relationship. And then you mentioned how his writing has some like central qualities to it. And it, it, there's a lot of intimacy between Narcissus and Goldman in the book. And you're sort of aware of that, but it, the intimacy is less, you know, of a physical fleshy nature. And like, like you were pointing out, it's more of like intellectual or, uh, you know, sort of uh, knowledge seeking um, that they have between them that, that sort of leads to this kind of closeness, you know, sort of intimate closeness between the two of them, you know, so it, yeah. it does have an interesting quality in that way. And there's not many writers that could, you know, really express it in the same way as, as Herman Hesse does. But also you touched on, it. I think one of the things that really, that I really responded to in that book is that it was, it offered really great and powerful descriptions, in my opinion, of both the idea of the pursuit of spiritual betterments or going after spiritual longings that are kind of, I might argue, are inside every person, you know, whether you're, whatever your faith is or whatever, as yeah. we were saying at the beginning. And then it also does a really good job of, of what you're after when you pursue artistic excellence. And this novel really demonstrates that there's kind of an overlap between those two things, right? Like when you're really trying to achieve excellence in art and you're really trying to achieve sort of knowledge or enlightenment or excellence in in your spiritual life there there's a lot of shared qualities between those two things even yeah. though it sounds so kind of hoity-toity to say so and this is a book that really captured that like for me like so i could relate to it on both the matter of my own spirit wherever it was when i was reading the book but also my own what I'm doing when I try to pursue artistic endeavors myself. So, you know, if you're a person who doesn't think much about spiritual matters and you're not an artist, 
it might not be a book for you, you know, but if you were a person who's really into either one of those things, it's a book that's worth reading, I think, you know, so those are some of my thoughts on it. Yeah. And, and I agree. And, you know, it's also really interesting because at the, at the end of the book, so you talked about rightly so how these two, the friendship between these two is like the, the kind of uh, hub of the wheel of this whole book. And yet, but he leaves Narcissus fairly early on in the book and they're not together for the majority of the book, mm-hmm. but he, he's often thinking of him and wondering in a sense, almost like what would Narcissus do in this situation or what would he have taught me? Cause he admires his intellect and his wisdom so much, but fascinatingly as you know, they come back together again after many years at the end of the book and they end up having kind of an extended dialogue with each other, basically about, everything about everything that that Goldman has experienced, you know, all the pleasures and all the, uh, you know, hedonistic stuff he's done in his life, but also all the suffering he saw through the plague and whatever. And they have this very memorable kind of back and forth about all of it and kind of, you know, essentially the meaning of life, you know, just before the end of the novel. And, you know, I won't say what happens at the end of the novel, but, uh, it, you know, so that's it's really interesting that, that that sort of device, the way they are together in the be- beginning of the book and at the end of the book for but for the majority of the book, they're, they're not. So it's really uh, it's a very, very interesting book. And Hessa, you know, is a challenging writer, you know, um, if anybody's read the book, like I read the book Steppenwolf and man, it, it's such a weird book you know story and and, you know he's not easy uh but this book in particular i just thought it touched on so many so many questions that i found to be of interest that it was it was a really rich experience for me so you know listeners can make of that what they will but we should move on um what would what would be the first title that you'd like to talk about well um i was just going to make a point you said, and it's kind of flying right out of my mind, so maybe it'll come back. But anyway, uh, the, the, the first book I was going to bring up is kind of a good companion volume to this, really. Um, and it's the most recent one that I've read, with the exception of, uh, I already mentioned I'm reading this book that I wrote right now. But the most recent one I completed, which I read specifically for this episode, was a book called Loris. I mentioned it a couple times. It's by a writer. I'm going to get this right this time. It's by a, a writer originally from the Ukraine but considered a Russian novelist, I guess. His name is Eugene Vodolazkin, and he's still alive. He has a, his most recent novel is something called The um, Justification of the Island, which I think is kind of interesting. Wow. I'm not sure, not sure what that means. Um, but this novel called Loris came out in 2016. I described a little bit when I was reading it on some of the, the more recent episodes. Uh, but I mentioned it's not a bad companion volume to the first one you brought up because it's also set in the Middle Ages. This one happens to be set in the 1400s. You remember the year, the period that Narcissus and Goldman was set? I don't. I, I would guess maybe 1300s, but I really don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, um, it's got to be a fairly similar time frame because the plague um, figure, factors in heavily into the novel Loris, but Loris is a novel that I would consider to be sort of almost a more explicit definition of a spiritual journey. Um, So this is translated from the Russian. And um, as you and I have said before, my experience with Russian novels, especially the big guys, you know, 
talking about the Tolstoys and the Dostoevskys and maybe Gogol and people like that. I'm sure I'm not unique in saying this. Pretty challenging stuff, pretty dense stuff, pretty dark stuff. The one thing I wanted to point out about this novel, even though the writer is contemporary, but it has a lot of themes that are common to Russian literature, I think, not being an expert. But this book felt different to me, John. It was not, I really enjoyed this book. It is a little bit heavy and it, it takes a little effort, but I don't know if uh, this is what you kind of run into with uh, world literature, John, and works that are in translation, because you don't always know if you're, you're getting, you know, sort of the work of the translator, or the work of the writer. All I can tell you is that this book didn't feel quite as heavy and oppressive to me as other Russian novels I've read. Um, and you've mentioned some even more contemporary Russian novels that you've read that are that were heavy and dense and hard to get through. I wouldn't call this book Loris like that. I thought it was a little bit, I mean, it's a little heavy, but not in the sense that you think of when you immediately think of big Russian novels. It's a fairly large novel. And it's written to me, I compared it more, and I mentioned this to you off off the air, sort of that it 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 really rung to me like a more of a Gabriel Garcella Gar Gabriel Garcia Marquez or one of these um, magical realist type of novelists, you know, a little bit of like Borges in there and um, maybe some of the other magical realists that I'm that are who are escaping me right now. But this was a book that had kind of the occasional lighter quality and just kind of like um, sort of fantastical elements in it here and there, just things that don't happen in kind of a normal world, but we're sort of just taken as, you know, just part of the landscape here in the, the, you know, the, the medieval, medieval Russia, but essentially the bare bones of the plot with Loris is there's this young boy who eventually becomes Loris. But one of the qualities of this book is that he lives by four different names and it's kind of almost um, sort of like evenly segmented, except for he doesn't become Loris until the end, sort of like close to the end of the book. And then he's Loris. And then there's different explanations for why he's named what he's named. But there's this young boy. He becomes orphaned, I think, because of the plague early in the book. And he goes to live with his grandfather who lives out in the woods in what is now the Ukraine, sort of like Eastern Russia at the time, or it was called Rus, R-U-S. That's how they referred to the country. His grandfather is like this elderly recluse who's also a healer, like he and like an herbalist. So he he goes around and he gathers herbs and exotic plants and stuff. And he has he finds ways to heal people of their ailments, um, but that are both due to the exotic plants he found. But he also seems to have this gift of being like a healer. So this young boy has nobody else. He goes to live with his grandfather on the first, like maybe quarter of the book, he's being raised by his grandfather to, you know, practice the same arts, you know? And then his grandfather dies early in the book and the boy is kind of left by himself. And he's an early teenager. And he, and you know, the, the villagers who happen to be in the areas that are popular nearby try to convince him to come and live with relatives or just sort of leave a more conventional life. But instead this young, fella decides to go out into the world and practice the trade that his grandfather raised him in. And so he does that and he starts to encounter all different peoples in different parts of Russia. And then he meets a young woman, falls in love with her. And it's not too much of a spoiler to say early on in the book, she becomes pregnant. 
she has a very one of the most difficult birthing scenes I've ever read in literature. The child dies and she dies. And for the rest of the book, this character who becomes Loris goes out into the world and practices his trade going further and further. And the reason why he's doing it is because he's trying to make sort of spiritual amends for not saving his wife and his baby. So he kind of, as the book goes on, he has discussions in his mind with his lost wife and he refers to this lost son that he had and he's trying to make up for, for whatever he didn't do to save them. And the book kind of goes from there and eventually he keeps going further and further out and he gains great renown. And then he runs into this mayor of a city in another country who's also lost a daughter, but like in an adult age and he has this little uh, pot or like little, um, no, it's like a little lamp, like a little oil lamp that belonged to his daughter. And he wants it to be implanted into a holy sepulcher in Jerusalem. So he asked Loris if he will be the guy to take the lamp into this holy church in Jerusalem. And that constitutes kind of the rest of the journey wow. and him trying to get to Jerusalem. And then eventually like in Narcissus and Goldman, he ends up back in the same little village that he started up in until he's old. And some events happen there when he's elderly and healing people. And he gets involved in the scandal that he was not guilty of and he eventually dies. And it's kind of the story of his life. So it's just right. It was a really interesting book in many ways. Like I said, it kind of had these magical realist quality. There was this writer has like a sense of humor. There would be these madcap moments that were really hilarious for a certain period of the book. He lives in, in a monastery, but he also finds it kind of too restrictive and he ends up going back out into the world and then just from, I don't know much about translation, but there you can tell that um, this guy, Vodolazkin, is kind of a uh, sort of a auteur, kind of a wizard with language because he would, like at different times, and the, there's a note in the beginning of the book from the translator, but at different times, the language would veer from just regular English, contemporary English into kind of like this old time, old English spelling. And the translator was explaining that that was kind of deliberate. And I'm not really even sure what the, <laughs> what the method was there, but it was kind of interesting. You could read it and you could follow it. And it just, and you, I was trying to figure out like what the trigger would be for people to suddenly start speaking in this old timey English. But I, I wanted to like, you know, buy a beer for the translator, a, a woman, I forget her name because man, like she was put through her paces but it ended up, the bottom line is it ended up being a really interesting, colorful spiritual journey with lots of adventures. And um, you sort of sympathize with this character the whole way because of what he's trying to make amends for, which is obvious maybe to you or me that, you know, he could, he could never make amends for that, you know, but he feels the burden to do it. And it was not real oppressive and it was kind of fun and interesting to read. So I'll leave it there with Loris. Yeah, that, that sounds like quite an interesting book and a challenging book, of course, but uh, something that certainly seems like right up my alley. Um, and it, and I was going to ask before, but I guess you answered, like, it sounds like the, the course, the action in the book, you know, takes place over, over years, right? I, I can totally see why you, you know, would say that this would make an interesting sort of companion to Narcissus and Goldman, because it seems to have, you know, some of its elements in common. 
yeah it goes it's like the arc of a one long life you know there's a a little bit of an overlap with the grandfather in the beginning but it's like one long lifetime you know so you follow him from like being real small all the way to you know his deathbed and even a little bit beyond that so and then i have to say john just to, before we move on at the end i this is kind of a spoiler but it's just sort of interesting so i'm sorry but at the very end of the book you know the character dies and they 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 do a sort of a funeral rite in a particular way which is really interesting for this character and then I was, and then it cuts to like these two people you don't even know from the whole rest of the book these just one's a farmer and one's like a merchant that are watching like the the um funeral rite or whatever they're doing you would have to read the book uh, it's the way that they're sort of sending Loris off into the afterlife but they just strike up a conversation and they, and, and I, I'm just paraphrasing but one of the guys says like you know yeah, you haven't even been in this town very long. You know, you don't understand Russia. And the other guy is like, well, you understand Russia? And the guy goes, no, of course not. Nobody understands it. You know, and, and that's the end of the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't. it's not exactly put that way, but the guy's like, you understand? And he's like, no, nobody does. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's just, it was just interesting, you know. I sort of enjoyed it recent right i don't know if did you say when it was published the 2016 i think it was 2012 in original russian but it came out in the english language in 2016 and i think it won like a lot of big prizes in russia okay well so because a lot of the books at least on my list you know are kind of more classic or they go back into the 20th century or earlier um, you know i wanted to make sure we brought up a few more contemporary titles i have a couple but i'm glad you brought that one up and it's you know, fairly recent, as we just said. So um, what I'd like to do now, maybe over the next, you know, 10 minutes or so, and then we take a break. I mean, it's just touch on, there's a whole host of, of writers. I mean, again, such a broad topic, but writers whose work you would expect to hear in a discussion like this that we're, we're just not going to be able to get to, you know. But I just thought of, you know, one of the first books that popped in my head when it comes to, you know, characters who are undergoing some kind of spiritual journey was for me this is a no-brainer would be Les Miserables by uh, Victor Hugo and I'm familiar with that story because of the right. famous musical but I mean that's literally a story about you know spiritual transformation for several characters you know at least two main characters being of course Valjean and and uh, Javert the police inspector their lives intertwined over the course of decades, but they're both going on their own kind of spiritual journey. And, and unfortunately they're kind of going in opposite directions, you know, uh, but that is certainly one of the great novels, you know, uh, of spiritual, spiritually themed novels and a spiritual transformation. Again, in that case, coming from sort of the, the Judeo Christian tradition. Um, and then, you know, the work of Victor Hugo in general, you know, is peppered with these kinds of themes. And I know that you not too long ago read uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And right. that is a lot more critical of, you know, Christian religion and with good reason, but still, you know, some spiritual themes there. Um, there are some other, you know, there are many other writers that popped into my head that I won't even get to touch on really. You know, two others, a, a little bit, two other American writers who I think, you know, have come up here and there on this show, but would really be, deserving of their own podcasts and episodes entirely. One would be Marilyn Robinson, who 
I've discussed, I talked about her essays a few times and I, I'm not that familiar with her fiction, but she's, she's written this whole string of novels now that are, that happen to be, you know, about pastors in the American heartland and kind of about their, their lives. And certainly, if you know anything about her writing, you know, very rich in kind of spiritual themes and, you know, uh, Gilead is one of them. I think uh, the most recent novel in this cycle is called Jack. Uh, but she is certainly some an author who's very well known for her for her work having spiritual content or spiritual themes. Another writer that popped into my head and that I want to at least mention would be Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, I, I've talked about him before on the show. I think he was in. I, I talked about him at some length in in the episode we did way back. Thankful for. Um, right. Wendell is a prolific writer, both fiction and nonfiction. But what's interesting about him really quick is that like he's written a whole series of novels that are about the spiritual life, not of any one individual, but of an entire community, which is called Port William. And he's written a whole series of many, many novels. I mean, there's probably 20 novels and novellas in this community over many, many years. So I think that's worth noting because I think he's a deeply wise writer who writes with great, you know, wisdom and erudition about spiritual themes, about the earth, about the environment, about our stewardship of the earth. Um, so certainly someone I wanted to at least mention, and he has many novels that, you know, uh, are set in this kind of sort of fictional community, kind of like Faulkner with Yorkton, Patofa County, you know, um, uh, you know, the popular terminology nowadays, it's almost like, uh, you know, the universe, like the Mar the DC universe or whatever. Well, well uh, Wendell Berry had created this entire community and ac across many, many stories and novels, he sort of tells, you know, the spiritual life of, of this whole place, which I think is really interesting. There's a novel in particular that he wrote called Jaber Crow, which uh, really struck me. I know you weren't, you weren't as big a fan of that book, um, but yeah. I think it's, it's it's really I think it's a really rich book about community and about struggle and hardship and certainly all of that relates to spiritual themes for sure. A um, couple others I just want to mention I know I'm talking for a while like you know that you know spiritual themes book there's a really interesting British writer a woman named Rumor Godden and you know she was kind of writing in the middle of the 20th century converted to Catholicism, but she was uh, born and raised in India. So you get sort of both Western and Eastern spiritual themes in her in her books, but she has in particular uh, a book that my, my wife really loved and, and had kind of an impact on her own spiritual life. It's called In This House of Breed, which is about a, um, a community of nuns who um, just living together and what their daily life was like. She also wrote Black Narcissus, which is also about a community of nuns, but explores kind of the darker side of life in that kind of community in very interesting ways. Um, but in this house of breed in particular, um, I've actually never read it, but she's read it a couple of times. And uh, it's just, she tells me it's a lot about, you know, these women kind of learning how to live together in community and learning humility, learning how to, you know, subordinate themselves to a higher, higher purpose or higher calling. So those are just that's just a smattering of writers that aren't even going to come up, but I think are all worth exploring. Um, 
if if you have any interest in reading sort of spiritually themed fiction. Do you have any writers that, you know, you're not going to get to that you'd like to mention? Or if you don't, we can, you know, take a break or whatever, because there's certainly other books that we could talk about. Yeah, I mean, I would bring up three writers that we're not going to that I'm not going to talk about today. Um, two are American and Catholic and one is not American and not not Catholic so far as I know. But um, almost any novel by the great Catholic writer Walker Percy um, would involve, you know, spiritual themes for sure. And some of them are kind of like you might call spiritual journey. One book that I really loved in particular called The Last Gentleman by Walker Percy is a great book involving kind of a spiritual, you know, I don't know if journey is the right word, but kind of like, you know, <laughs> adventure. Trajectory, um, yeah. Right, right. And then there's another Catholic writer that I'm not quite as familiar with, uh, but who's responsible for one of the great American Catholic novels called Mort Durbin. And that would be this guy, J.F. Powers, who also has another mm-hmm. water novel called Wheat That Springeth Green. And then he has a lot of really great short stories that I, you've mentioned before. Um, another writer that came to my mind that I'm not really going to discuss because I don't know enough. And then I've talked, there's a writer I really like, um, a more contemporary writer that I think, it, so this is more in the vein of like the Coen brothers or somebody who doesn't profess to be very religious, but writes about a lot of themes that are really spiritual in nature, in my opinion. And that's somebody that I've really become a big fan of recently by the name of Tim Winton from Australia. Um, definitely not a, you know, Christian themed writer, but definitely is somebody who's concerned with the spirit and our connection, particularly to the earth and the water and uh, explores a lot of those big questions. So that's somebody else that I would recommend people read as I have before. But other than that, I mean, my other books are more specific. So we could take a quick break if you want, John, and then uh, maybe we'll start. We'll start again after that. Yeah, let's let's do that. Take a quick break and we'll we'll be back in just a few seconds. All right. back again hey jude um want to hear something interesting why not yes i do so almost to the day it was almost one year ago to the day we're just two days shy so on march 29th 2021 today's being march 27th of 2022 but on march 29th 2021 we recorded our episode on dan hornsby's novel via negativa which is a perfect selection for this discussion. And I wanted to make sure that I brought up. Uh, wow, that's interesting. In, yeah, isn't that weird? So in going back and checking the episode number, which by the way is episode 26, for anybody who would like to go back and listen to that discussion, um, I saw that it was you know, released on March 29th. So weirdly, you know, on almost the one exact one year anniversary of that discussion, here we are again discussing you know, spiritually themed fiction 
in general. And I was going to, you know, bring that novel up and, and, and recommend, recommend the book. Uh, I mentioned before that, um, I, you know, I was hoping we would bring up some more contemporary titles and that, uh, that have been written in, you know, in the last several years or so. And that would be one of them. Um, Dan Hornsby's debut novel called Via Negativa. Uh, we discussed it at length on episode 26. Um, it's a perfect selection for this topic and um, really one of my favorite novels that I've read over the last couple of years. I know we, you know, we were a little bit divided on it, but we both really liked it. And I'll just, you know, we're not going to get into the plot of that and everything. You can go back and listen to our discussion if you're interested. But one aspect of that novel, you know, as it pertains to this discussion that I really like is that I think it just charts it charts a character's particular spiritual journey at a certain point of his life. And he's going through something of a spiritual crisis, but it really, you know, I was thinking about this and it kind of describes somebody, you know, what happens when your whole spirit, this is how I would say it. When your whole spiritual planet has been knocked off its axis, you know, by something and everything you thought you were really sure about, or you firmly believed has been, you know, thoroughly and utterly shaken by whatever, in this case, it's bias, you know, a particular tragic event and some of the, some of the reverberations of that event. But um, I think the novel does a wonderful job describing somebody in that state when they're, you know, they've dedicated their life to matters of the spirit, but now they've been, you know, the, the foundations of that life and that commitment have been deeply shaken. And, and where do you go from there? And that, you know, that's very, very broadly kind of what that novel is about. But then it also combines that with, with I think, a very, you know, wry humor and also a particular form of American weirdness that I, I thought made for a really interesting, you know, uh, brew. So, but I just, I just noticed that and I just thought it was a novel I wanted to bring up anyway. I certainly mention it again as a recommendation to our listeners, anybody who's interested uh, in reading, you know, sort of spiritually themed fiction should at least take a look at that book. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we were a little bit divided on that because I didn't, wasn't crazy about sort of the main character and that story. And there were some plot elements to it that I had difficulty buying, but, um, but what I, first of all, you're right. It's, it's cool to bring in some contemporary titles and I, I actually have a couple that I'll get to at some point. Um, I don't know if, if I'll do so at any length, but that, that I'll definitely be bringing up. Um, two you're very familiar with, one you're not as familiar with. But the thing about uh, Daniel Hornsby's novel, Be a Negativa, that I really liked, and I think you, you expressed it well just now, was um, the, the, the feeling that reading that book gave you. So it's kind of a brisk novel. It was kind of like a road novel. It was easy to get through. It's like, well-written, but the feeling that it gave you that there was, that there is or can be consequence of, of a real nature of a, not just kind of frivolous or jokey nature of going through a spiritual crisis. I think that's what that book to me was really valuable for. Like you really, it, it, it took the, I, the whole concept of a spiritual struggle or journey seriously. And it, it, it portrayed like a believable account of that. And there's a lot of people that just don't buy into any matters of the spirit, 
but to anyone who has ever gone through any kind of spiritual crisis, let alone, I like the way you described it as your whole kind of spiritual planet being bumped off its axis. This book made those feelings feel real and, um, and contemporary and, and that they just have some weight and seriousness to them, you know, and that's what I really appreciated about that novel. Cause a lot of novels don't take that stuff seriously today, you know? Right. Yeah. Good point. So anyway, John, the, just to transition, it would be a good segue into one of the two of the more contemporary, contemporary titles I have on my list, but I'm going to not, take that bait and I'm going to do instead kind of a hard, hard turn. We're going to talk for a little bit. And I, I love, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about one of the great American spiritual writers that has come up many, many times on the podcast and always comes up around any discussion of spiritual literature. And that's Flannery O'Connor, um, oh, yeah. the great American writer. And I wanted to talk about one of her books, maybe not at great length, so she had a short life and then she only produced, uh, I think it's two full novels and two uh, story collections, if I have that right. Right. It was just two in her lifetime, two novels and two story collections. Right. OK. And the, and the, the one book by her that is always there, all of her books are challenging and they're very, you know, they're very spiritual in nature but they're very kind of counterintuitive there. We're not talking about the hearts and <laughs> hearts and rainbows and, uh, you know, good feelings in Flannery O'Connor's work. Cause a lot of people are familiar with her works. Uh, her, she wrote Catholic novels that were set in the deeply Protestant South. And she wrote many essays about that topic, et cetera, et cetera. But the book she wrote, the novel she wrote that always threw me for a loop to this very day is called the violent, the violent bear it away which is such an odd title and it gives you, you know, the sense of what you're in for. Um, that title comes from Matthew 11, chapter 11, verse 12, which reads, at least in some versions, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent bear it away. So huh. what that even means, you know, like, I guess, you know, violence is a thing and the people who experience it kind of carry it with them. I don't know. This is such an odd book. I just finished reading it prior to this episode, John, for the third time. But the second time I read it was probably a good 20 years ago. And it would be really hard to describe this. It, it, it's about, like, I'll just give the bare bones of the plot. And then I actually wanted to read a little segment of the book to demonstrate um, something about the way Flannery Connor wrote about spiritual matters but just really bare bones you have to you know Flannery o'connor is definitely not for everybody like i said her books were usually her books and stories are usually set in the backwater south you know tennessee georgia florida alabama that kind of that kind of region um, which she described as kind of christ haunted and um often her books have to do with kind of spiritual kind of wackos you know like uh the very zealous people of the Protestant stripe, I guess, who consider themselves to be kind of backwoods prophets and healers and, you know, <laughs> snake charmers and that type of thing. So in this novel, which was her second and was written very close to the end of her life in which she was suffering a lot of physical pain from lupus, basically the main character is this young 
fella like a like a adolescent by the name of Francis Marion Tarwater. And he is born to a mom and dad who um uh one of the one of the parents is this the child of an older grandfather in this guy's life who also goes by the name of Tarwater, who considers himself to be a prophet and the grandfather living in like isolation in like the backwoods. Uh, his son and her, his wife have a baby named Francis Marion Tarwater. It's uh, described in flashback that this, the son is basically, you know, Tarwater's son, the grandfather's son decides to kind of like eschew the religious side of his family and live a more intellectually based life. And so it, in flashbacks, we find out that the grandfather who considers himself a prophet won't have that. So he kidnaps Francis Marion Tarwater, takes him out into this shack in the backwoods and raises him to be a prophet himself until he's around adolescent age. At the beginning of the book, the grandfather dies kind of in mid rant, you know, hell sort of hellfire preach preaching. And he's already given instructions to Francis Marion Tarwater about how to, you know, take care of his body. And then uh, the novel describes how the son, whose name is Raber, finds out that the grandfather has died and he comes to kind of claim the child. But the child kind of rebels and decides that he doesn't want to live with the son. And then they spend the son and Francis Marion Tarwater spend most of the novel kind of kicking around this weird backwoods town and in the woods and stuff, arguing about how Francis Marion Water is going to spend the rest of his life. And they have all these crazy, weird exchanges about, you know, the life of the intellect versus the life of the backwoods prophet. And there's all these just like ridiculous conversations and everybody is kind of ornery and strange. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what happens in this book. You know, it's like kind of a, it's a really weird story. And even having read it three times, I still can't, you know, sort of really get my head around what exactly is going on. But the character Francis Marion Tarwater being just an adolescent definitely goes on this strange spiritual odyssey in this book. And towards the end of the book, I wouldn't want to give away too much, but he suffers this act of tremendous cruelty and violence to his own body which sets him on this uh what's implied to be a rather dark and difficult destiny in the and you know the spiritual sense but i just want to read three paragraphs from the middle of the book while francis marion tarwater and his and his uh uncle are kind of moving around in the deep south to give you to give re listeners kind of an idea of the way that France, the way that Flannery O'Connor wrote about spiritual matters in general. So this is from the point of view of the character Raber, who's trying to reclaim Francis Marion Tarwater and it let him uh, bring him up in a more modern and intellectual manner. And so it says he was not afraid of love in general. He knew the value of it and how it could be used. He had seen it transform in cases where nothing else had worked, such as with his poor sister. None of this had the least bearing on his situation. The love that would overcome him was of a different order entirely. It was not the kind that could be used for the child's improvement or his own. 
It was love without reason, love for something futureless, love that appeared to exist only to be itself, imperious and all demanding, the kind that would cause him to make a fool of himself in an instant. He always felt it with a rush of longing to have the old man's eyes, insane, fish-colored, violent, with their impossible vision of a world transfigured, turned on him once again. The longing was like an undertow in his blood, dragging him backwards to what he knew to be madness. The affliction was in the family. It lay hidden in the line of blood that touched them, flowing from some ancient source, some desert prophet or pole sitter, until its power unabated, it appeared in the old man and him, and he surmised in the boy. Those it touched were condemned to fight it constantly or to be ruled by it. The old man had been ruled by it. He, at the cost of a full life, off what the boy would do hung in the balance. So that's just an example of the kind of the fierceness and power of Flannery O'Connor's writing on spiritual matters that is quite unique compared to any other spiritual writer in the history of our country or really in the history of literature. So I wanted to bring up The Violent Bear Away. It's, it's a really bizarre book, but a really powerful book and one that you could kind of mull over for most of your life. Do you have anything you want to say about it? <laughs> uh, wow. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to know how to, how to describe or react to Flannery O'Connor's work sometimes, you know, I, it's fascinating. I agree with you. She's certainly one of the, one of the giants in American literature writing about spiritual matters, but she does it in such a dark and disturbing way. It's really interesting that, you know, I brought up Mary, Marilyn Robinson a little while ago. And in that most recent collection of essays that she wrote, and she's a very, you know, esteemed and you know highly regarded american writer now uh she a comment she made it sort of a side comment that she 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 never quite could get flannery o'connor uh, or she she understands her incredible talent and her greatness as a writer but she said it you know her writing has has never really appealed to her personally because the, she, this is mary lynn robinson talking about it she said there's 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 no love in it you know she said, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm simplifying, but, you know, Flannery O'Connor, I use the word fierce, and she wrote, uh, you know, it's, it's strange because she, she took her spiritual life so very seriously and by all accounts was very devout. And, you know, all these questions really mattered to her. But her fiction takes, you know, describes, you know, characters who are just, you know, to use one of her words, you know, grotesque and just absurd and, and very, very dark and fanatical. And so, you know, it's fascinating to read her stuff, but it's also like, you're just like, what is going on with these, with these people? You know, there's like a madness to it that she just sort of acknowledges in that, pa in that passage that you just read, you yeah. know, but it's very interesting to, and, you know, there's a writer that you'll never get to the bottom of because it's like, why was she why was she exploring so much this dark sort of fanatical, you know, crazy side of, of spiritual life when, you know, spiritual life indeed for her was so very important. And and being a person who tries to pursue holiness, you know, so it's just this very strange kind of like uh her relationship to the spiritual is very, very difficult to understand.
Yeah, it's kind of, there's a scene early in the violent bear it away where the grandfather Tarwater kidnaps his grandson, like I said, and takes him out into the woods to raise him. But he leaves like a little note in the crib of the parents that he's taken him from. And the note says, the prophet that I raised this boy to become will burn your eyes clean. And that <laughs> that's all the note says. That's what Flannery O'Connor is like. You, you read that and there's great power in it. And you're like, what the hell is he talking? You know, is he talking about at the same time? And, you know, I'm very fascinated by her work. A lot of people would really dislike it, but I just haven't encountered another spiritual writer who wrote with this sort of otherworldly preternatural sense of, you know, spiritual power or like forces, you know, driving whatever it was that she was doing, you know, yeah. and that that's what I sort of take from her. But, you know, you have to kind of suffer through it almost literally, you know? Yeah. 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 Many episodes could be devoted just to trying to parse out her work and figure her out. Yeah, you're right. But we can move on. Yeah. I'm going to bring up a title that is, you know, very old, A, and uh, as I sometimes do, bring much older literary <laughs> titles into these discussions, but also is, you know, pre-Christian, so not not from the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition at all. And I, you know, I'm not an expert in this, in this uh, world famous, you know, epic poem. So I'm not going to, I can't speak to it as such, but I did want to bring it up. And that is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I know you read. I think for the first time fairly recently. That's right. Yeah. Um, I thought we we can't have an extended discussion on it, but I thought I would bring it up first of all, as I said, because it's pre-Christian and really has nothing to do with Christianity. And yet uh, it is a powerful work that touches on many interesting spiritual themes when you think about it. But um, so just very brief, this is, this is a, ancient one of the most ancient you know works that we have that's still read today uh, i think it's from the sumerian culture or region um but of course it's so old that there's we're not quite sure who wrote it or what its actual origins were but it's uh you know it's an epic tale of i think a prince or a king um who you know among many other things he he is a powerful king uh he uh you know, dominates over a great part of the land and over many kingdoms. He's, he's achieved worldly success. He angers the gods uh, to the extent that they send a, a, a man to kind of do combat with him. And this man is named Enkidu. And uh, it's kind of a way to challenge, you know, kind of slap him down and say, you're getting a little too big for your britches. I'm, I'm really, you know, glossing over a lot, but you know, and this is also, it's been a while since I have read it. I've read it a few times, but um, it's just a fascinating, it's, it's still fascinating to this day. Um, anyway, he, uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, they end up, you know, they go into combat, but they end up be, becoming lifelong friends and they have a series of sort of adventures together. You know, they fight various monsters. They, they journey over you know, far and wide together and they, they end up having this, you know, incredibly, you know, tightly bonded friendship. Um, and at some point, I don't really remember why, but at some point, you know, 
the gods basically take him away, take this friend Enkidu away from Gilgamesh, and he becomes ill and he dies. And Gilgamesh is utterly heartbroken by this loss of his friend. And there are many other things that happen in the book. At one point, you know, he 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 goes to try try to uh, visit the gods, sort of their the, like their equivalent of what we might know as Mount Olympus. Um, and to get there, he has to go through this long, very long, dark tunnel. And uh, he has to walk through what is sort of famously known as the 12 Leagues of Darkness. So there's a whole period in the, in the epic poem where he, by himself, he walks through this, this very long, you know, he can't see anything. He just walks through Leagues of Darkness. And so, you know, uh, it, it, it's, you know, you can see the sort of spiritual overtones there of just, you know, he go, what he has to go through you know, out of loyalty and out of love for his friend. And um, he, he makes it through that, those 12 leaves of darkness. And then there's also fascinatingly, there's a whole passage where there's a, there's a flood narrative. And this is, this predates even the old Testament, I believe. And there's a story of a flood that covers the whole earth that the gods send to sort of like condemn humanity uh, but one of the gods tells him, kind of gives him a secret about how he can build a, a huge boat to sort of survive this flood. Uh-huh. It's just, this, is be- this is before Noah and the Ark, you know. So it's fascinating to know that, you know, the story of Noah and the Ark drew from earlier sources, clearly. And what that might mean, you know, like why, why in more than one religious tradition, you know, the gods decided we're fed up with you guys, you know, humanity, and we're going to destroy the whole thing and reboot. You know, I think that's that's really interesting too. Um, but you know, uh, at the end of this epic poem, you know, he kind of he, he sort of ends up back where he started in a way with his with his kingdom. And I think you know, you can read the entire thing as uh, how, how to put this, but you know, uh, you know, kind of like how we can achieve you know eternal life, you know, or eternal fame or whatever in this life. And he sort of realizes at the end that you can't, you have to be content with what you have. Um, mm-hmm. You're not achieve immortality. And so, you know, it's a really interesting, you know, compendium of like, you know, you got monsters, you got leaves of darkness, you got a flood. And so it's like kind of an exciting, you know, epic poem in that sense. There's a lot going on. You have this incredible friendship between these two men. Um, and, you know, they, he has love affairs and, and, you know, interacts with the gods and there's, there's all kinds of things happening. But at the end of the day, you can read the whole thing as this sort of very interesting kind of spiritual allegory. Uh, in, you know, you can interpret it in various ways, but, you know, basically what I just said at the end, you know, it's like he realizes, like we all do, <laughs> I'm not going to live forever. And, uh you know, I need to be content with what I have in the here and now and try to live the best life that I can. You know, again, grossly oversimplifying. And, you know, there are probably sc- scholars who would horse laugh at this, you know, synopsis of <laughs> the Epic of Gilgamesh. But it's a really, it's a, when you sit down and actually read it, it's really interesting. And I found it very thought provoking as well. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know. You just read it recently, so I, I would, I guess, one reason why I brought it up is because, you know, we haven't even talked about it. I'd love to just get a couple impressions from you of, you know, how did it strike you reading it in twenty twenty two for the first time? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was like, and and you know, 
part of it is just my memory like you know details are already kind of fading out into the ether it, <laughs> yeah it, it was like it was like a quick read but the, the one thing that i do remember that that i would uh sort of adjust your synopsis on is that in around the middle of the book uh gilgamesh and i mean or um is gilgamesh the king yeah i believe so yeah yeah, yeah. him and uh his friend enkidu um, who they sent, you're right, they send, the, the gods kind of send Enkidu to do combat with him. Gilgamesh defeats him. And then, and right. he kind of sur surrenders. And then they um, eventually team up and they go to, to, to do battle with this monster. You know, this about halfway through the book. Uh, but what happens is the monster kills Enkidu. Um, oh, okay. So that's how Enkidu's loss takes place. You know, like they defeat the monster, but the monster kills Enkidu. And um, I believe, and, and if I don't have that wrong, and then, you know, after that, uh, Gilgamesh, the king, is like kind of dealing with the loss of his friend. And, and then it goes on from there, like you said, and he's trying to, one of the things he tries to figure out how to um, achieve is immortality. And then he fails to do so, you know, through his whole journey to see the gods and through the tunnel into darkness. But he fails to, you know, he can't, he fails to achieve it. You know, right. and then he comes to some of those realizations that you said at the end. Um, it was really interesting to read. Like, I, I, you know, I really sort of, as as we said before, like kind of shy away from reading anything that's that old or in verse or both, <laughs> you know. And so yeah. it was really interesting to the, in, in the version I had, it was you know, really expertly done by this translator named Stephen Mitchell. And he had a, like a very long introduction where he, gave a lot of the history in the background, most of which I've forgotten. But then he talks a lot about kind of the the structure of the, the poem and like the way it was written. And it was just really interesting. And he t touches also a lot about how it was really way ahead of, you know, Christian scripture. And some of the details in the, like, for example, the flood story, it's all the way down to like, they send out a bird who comes back with a branch, you know, like, that's all in the flood story in Gilgamesh, which is just crazy. You're right. Um, so one of the interesting things to me was like seeing what stuff there was like older than scripture that we contemporary, that we associate with modern scripture. And the other thing, frankly, was just the, the nature of the, the poetic structure. Like I, it was just really interesting that, and I, I couldn't really unlock this, but I found it kind of fascinating. Like the poem itself would have, um, several stanzas that would like sort of repeat themselves. Like they would just like, you know, have a stanza and then it would give or have three or four stanzas. Then it would repeat the same three or four stanzas. And in one part of the poem, it repeats four or five stanzas in a row, like four or five times. <laughs> and I, I was just really, you know, it was really interesting to think about why the writer or whoever it was, was doing that. And the way it would be experienced if it was, you know, cause these were told orally and stuff like that. I thought that stuff was kind of fascinating. It, it didn't really hold me up. I just didn't know what to make of some of those things. Yeah. But, you know, some of those universal themes, you're right. Like just, and then this is like going way, way, way back. And some of them are just, just as salient today. You said I read it in 2022 as they are any other time, you know, just like in terms of those things you mentioned, just being satisfied with what you have around you and not being so concerned. There is a great deal of concern in the story about, 
personal renown and how you can like keep it going and make sure that everybody knows who you are, you know, and, <laughs> and yeah. what you've done. And then you get to the end of the, of the poem and it's kind of like, you know, there's a realization that it's just kind of why, you know, and it's kind of for, for how old this poem is, it's still quite relevant, you know, like, and it, and it just makes you think about things on those level, you know? So it was really interesting. Yeah. And I, I'm fascinated by the, you know, and I've, I've noticed this a lot. It's something like you go back and read, read something like Epic of Gilgamesh or, you know, I mentioned a few episodes back, The Green Knight or, you know, a much older work, you know, whether it be epic poetry or not. And you, you know, let's say mythology, you know, works that have like mythological creatures and kind of, you know, contests between. Them. It's just really, I think, like, at a very deep down level, you know, these are human beings just like us who are grappling with the same questions that we do now. And this is, these are stories, these are the stories that they came up with to try to wrestle with some of this stuff. And yes, it seems crazy and oddball and fantastic to us now, but the questions are the same, you know, and it's fascinating to just kind of glimpse back and see how you know, with what resources were available to them and with what knowledge of the universe, which is very, very limited, obviously. Obviously, it's we know vastly more about, about you know, our physical surroundings and the nature of existence now. Grappling with the same questions, aren't we? It's just fascinating yeah. to me you know, to read these ancient expressions and just think, well, that's how they were trying to wrestle with it. We might wrestle with it, you know, in questions of quantum physics or whatever, or um, theology or whatever it might be. But the questions are the same. And it's just, you know, on that level, it's, you know, I feel a sort of kinship with these ancient writers, even though it's hard to understand what they were getting at. But and they're also, you know, there's, there's a lot of cracking good action, you know, in the in the yeah. epic of mesh. So it's, you know, it informs that kind of you know, fantasy and fantasy writing and all that stuff. So it's just, it's interesting on a number of levels. Yeah. There was sometimes in Gilgamesh where you felt, and I was talking about, you know, people wanting their deeds to be known throughout the land. You, you felt like you were two steps away from, man, I mean, I, you know, if I could just get enough followers, you know, I could be, <laughs> it was, it was like that. And it, it's like, there's so many millennia in between, the notion of having followers and Gilgamesh, you know? Yeah. Or it's like, you know, that sounds like, you know, uh, King Gilgamesh or whatever concerned about his legacy and how many people, you know, he rules. It's like, it sounds like Donald Trump, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, the, 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 I guess one way to say it is it's these tales that endure for so long, you know, that do so for a reason, you know? Exactly. Um, well, you know, we don't have forever, but I'm sure there's at least one other title that you want to bring up and probably more than one. But uh, what's next on the docket for you? So I'm going to I'm going to um, I guess I'll call an audible here. I'm going to talk about two more contemporary titles since you mentioned it earlier. And then if there's a little time at the end, I want to talk a little bit about these stories that I wrote, not to, you know, not to puff them up, but just I'm just more interested in what I remember about trying to put a spiritual journey in a piece of literature. But 
for some two contemporary titles I wanted to bring up. One of them is by a writer we've talked about many times and talked about recently in the in the Monsters episode. That would be Cormac McCarthy. And we've taught a lot, we've talked a lot about his work, but he has one work, and this is not even a novel actually, but he has one work I wanted to bring up in, in the context of the spiritual journeys, because it's kind of only about a spiritual journey in a way. Um, so there's a, a play that he wrote. He has written a few plays. There was one that was published a few about a decade ago called The Sunset Limited. And it was also made into a film that was on HBO. But this is like not, you know, if you're looking for an action film or, you know, real cinema, you're not, you don't want this. This is just literally a dialogue between two characters for 90 minutes. Um, but it's a, it's basically about at the opening of the play, the play, it all takes place in one apartment in the middle of New York city in like a really grubby part of New York city. And the one character is like this, uh, custodian guy that just works for a living. And he's like sort of older and he kind of lives in this ratty apartment. And the guy that he's brought back to his apartment is a professor of something. It's a little bit unclear in the story, maybe philosophy or something like that, who has tried to hurl himself in front of an underground train that's called the Sunset Limited. Uh, I mean, it's implied that it's a subway, but I don't know. I didn't, subways don't really have names like that, so I'm not sure where it is, but it's referred to in the play as the Sunset Limited. That's why, hence the title. And so this professor has tried to throw himself underneath the tracks of the Sunset Limited and this janitor saved him from it and brought him back to his apartment when the play opens. And the whole play is about the professor is not religious and is suicidal and decided there's no real point to anything, basically. And the guy who saves him has had a whole Christian life and engages him in dialogue to find out why he tried to commit suicide and how he can change his mind and get him to look upon life another way. <clears throat> so in the Christian's mind, it's kind of an act of uh, perhaps charity or um, evangelization. And in the eyes of the professor, it's just prolonging the inevitable. And the whole play yeah. is a very interesting dialogue between these two older men trying to convince the, the other that they're right, but it's sort of done in kind of a respectful and sometimes funny manner. But what's so notable about the play, and I won't talk about it much more than that, is that towards the end of the play, it's kind of like almost a reverse spiritual journey from one you might expect. So that uh, without giving too much of a way, towards the end of the play, the Christian individual finally convinces the professor to really lay out his reasons as to why he's doing what he's doing. And so the professor who's kind of has a sort of wry affection for the guy that saved him finally gets tired of listening to the Christian. And he says, and he, and he's like, okay, well, let me just tell you why uh, I think suicide is the only way out. And he gives this dizzying, you know, sort of one-sided argument about why he thinks he's correct and how none of it really matters. And essentially he really shakes the foundations of the Christian man. And then basically he says, I got to go. And he leaves. And the Christian man has gone kind of on a trajectory from really solid footing to what 
feels to me like very shaky ground at the end of the book, at the end yeah. of the play. Yeah. So it's just an example of a spiritual trajectory kind of going the other way from what you might expect. And it's also an example of a, a really great writer working through some of those big questions you mentioned, John, kind of feels like for himself. And if he doesn't land all the way on the side of, you know, the darker side of it, he sure seems to pretty close to it. And you kind of follow along as the reader on sort of that intellectual and spiritual journey in this play. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be for everybody, but it, it's kind of a, you know, it's quite a ride and there's, there's quite a volley there at the end. Yeah. And I, I actually, we probably won't get to them at least not more than just a mention, but I have a couple of different uh, novels I wanted to mention that also have sort of, re of a reverse spiritual trajectory, you know, go from, you know, one of the things I remember about the Sunset Limited is like, he's so sure of his own convictions. He's so sure of himself, you know, borders on sometimes, you know, uh, uh, religion of a particular evan evangelical bent can seem so sure of itself that it crosses the line in, into like smugness, you know. Uh -huh. And this character is not quite there because he's he, you can feel that he has genuine compassion and care for this man and for mankind in general, but he's so sure of all his answers, and it's very interesting as as the play goes on to see that that assurance kind of dismantled you know uh and that's that's like you just said that's kind of the, the trajectory that this particular play traces but it's it's very interesting yeah and then i i was gonna mention another contemporary title but do you want to uh, fit one in just in the interest of time it's okay with me well i i was gonna say something about both of these but i don't think we'll have the time anyway so those lines there are two books i was going to mention and describe a little bit but, but that sort of have this kind of trajectory they both you know there's not a lot in common with each of them but they both have um you know christian believers in in america in different periods of america uh that are very sure of their sort of foundations and of their convictions and in one way or another are trying to evangelize and um in one case, one is a traveling salesman who's just sort of an evangelist. And in the, in the other case, one is literally a pastor of a church. In both of these novels, they go through a kind of, you know, trajectory that at the end of the novels, you know, they're, they're in very different places sort of spiritually. But uh, I'll just mention them real quick. One is by an, a terrific American writer that doesn't get talked enough, doesn't get talked about nearly enough today that has come up on this podcast a few times named Thornton Wilder. His oh, yeah. novel was uh, the bridge of the, uh, the bridge of San Luis Ray, which has come up on this podcast, but he wrote a lesser known book called heaven's my destination about a, like I said, a traveling salesman who's also trying to be an evangelist. And by the end of the book, he realizes he's not cut out to be an evangelist. And he actually sort of settles down into a much more, you know, domestic life and gets married and, it's a kind of a comic romp through the South, but it has very interesting sort of things. The book is, is an older book, and it's called The Damnation of Theron Ware. And it's not very well known today. It's written by a man named Harold Frederick. But it's a fascinating account of a sort of an intellectual and spiritual unraveling of a pastor 
who uh, in various ways sort of gets seduced by more contemporary ideologies. And also he gets involved with other churches. And there's so much kind of bickering and kind of, uh, you know, stuff going on in necessarily wholesome and Christian. It's sort of a spiritual. It's a very interesting book that grapples with a lot of, uh, you know, grapples with the the kind of you know the conflicts sometimes that is felt between more traditional kind of religion and contemporary ideologies. I, I guess I'll say. So those are two really interesting, you know, titles widely read anymore, but I think are both worth seeking out. But anyway, I, I apologize for really, you know, taking you off of your your track there, but, you know, I'll leave it at that. Hopefully you can pick up your trail. Oh, no, no problem. I mean, we're just sort of batting it back and forth now, and I'm actually interested to hear about those two books. There's another book that it wasn't even on my list, but um, by a more contemporary writer that your discussion of Theron Ware reminded me of a little bit. Um, contemporary writer who I really admire, who's not very sympathetic to Western Christianity, put it that way. Her name's Hilary Mantel, and she's famous mostly for those three volumes of historical fiction she wrote about Sir Thomas Cromwell. But early in her career, she's responsible for a novel called Flood, F-L-U-D-D, obviously spiritual overtones to the, that term but that's the name of a character in the book and i won't go into detail either but it's set in britain and there's this whole parish community that's kind of like you know in a little bit of disarray and struggling with a lot of those the bickerings and the sort of discord that you were talking about so at the beginning of the book this preacher named flood arrives to kind of and he was sent by the powers on high or whatever to kind of fix everything up but as the novel goes on He's very mysterious and he's not easy to figure out. And then you realize he was kind of, he, he's almost, it's implied he's almost like an agent from the other side. He came in there to just make it worse, you know, and just kind of tear the whole place asunder sort of yeah. past, the, past the point of recovery. And that's basically what he does in the book, this preacher named flood. So that's an interesting example as well. of <laughs> Kind of like a reverse spiritual trajectory. And then there was just one last title. I'll just mention it. It's just an interesting, I would describe this as a spiritual novel in some ways, but it's not overt. It's written by somebody who I, I happen to know is a Catholic, but there's not a lot of uh, religious imagery or overtones to this book that I remember. It's kind of a war book. It's called The Sojourn, which has spiritual implications because it's like a, the so, the so, a sojourn is kind of like a spiritual journey. Yeah. Um, but it's an unusual trajectory. It's, it's a contemporary novel. It was uh, not very well known, it was published about a decade ago, it was a finalist for a National Book Award, but didn't win. It's about the, so the character begins in the United States in the late. I, I believe the story starts in like the 1890s or so, and then travels a little forward in time. But the main character emigrates from the United States in the first part of the 20th century back to his roots in like Czechoslovenia, Austria, Hungary, and ends up fighting in World War I for the side with the Germans. So he's in the Kaiser's army. So he, <laughs> he comes back to Europe in order to join that conflict from the, the German side. And then he undergoes this long um, 
journey through combat and also of the spirit, but kind of like just kind of in an overtone kind of way. And he becomes a sniper and ends up killing a lot of people and struggling with killing people. And then there's this whole um, sequence in this book, which is set in the Italian Alps in which he is fighting for the army through these like really high mountains in the snow. And then uh, it just sort of traces him on this whole trajectory through the sort of scourge of war, carnage and death and sort of his responsibility for that carnage and death, you know, and that's basically that book, but it was a really interesting kind of uh, different approach to um, like a war story and like a, a, a it's kind of a spiritual journey without a lot of explicit Christian overtones based on the author's own family history. So that's like another interesting book also. It would be worth reading. Yeah, you actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you gave me that book. Um, and uh, I, I don't remember a lot of details, but I do remember being quite impressed with it as well. Uh, that was a really, I remember it taking place in World War One. I. I remember that he yeah. was a sniper. And I remember that, you know, he had, he was really grappling with some of his experiences during the war. And uh, it's beautifully written too. So that's a that's a great pick, uh, an obscure one, but great. Yeah, that I was looking at my list that came that came up, and I said that would be an interesting one to bring up because not many people talk about it. I also want to commend you because you did you don't even notice you didn't even notice this, but you invented your own country, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> great, <laughs> and you know our. Well, I'm going to ask the production team to leave to leave that in there. <laughs> one of our uh you know one of those european countries uh, who cares you know that's not uh, that that's not what i meant uh doesn't I exist just, anymore anyway so <laughs> stumbled stumbled over it czechoslovakia austria hungary <laughs> you know you just it, you just you just turned you know the history of czechoslovakia and transylvania into one into one thing so yeah congrats. great you know well i'm an american what can i say yeah. Well, so, I, you, I, there's there's other books that I could discuss, but um, why don't we spend you know the remaining minutes to let's I'll turn it over to you because I would you know I know it would be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about you know attempting to write some of this stuff. I'm I'm a big fan of the book Obsidian. I remember that being a lot of fun to read. So um, you know, should we just use whatever time we have to? You were going to talk a little bit about uh, writing that, and I think something else. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, it feels a little strange to do that, but um, I guess what I was thinking was I could bring into this discussion a little bit from the perspective of somebody trying to create a story with a spiritual arc to it. And I thought, well, there were two times when I've sort of I don't want to say overtly, but tried to do this in fiction that I've written. The first being that novel Obsidian, which I'm rereading now. So it's an adventure story that I tried to write for sort of younger readers, sort of mid-range readers, you know, 10 to 15 or something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Wrote it back in 2014. I was actually working on it at the time of our father's decline and death which was poignant for me because the character in the story, there's a young fellow named Gregor, who I based very much on your oldest son, John. 
which I, which you know, um, who was a who was a teenager at the time. Um, he loses his father in the story, which was sort of planned, but it wasn't planned for them to be kind of you know happening around the same time. I don't, you know, I, I believe I finished the draft of the novel before our dad passed away. But then I was like just starting to edit it and kind of reshape it when he died and in the months after he died. So I was going through, in, a, in essence, some of the same things that the character I was writing was going through without really planning to. But that was like a fantasy story. But it hinged on, you know, the, at the beginning of the book, this young man who's not hasn't really had sort of a rite of passage yet discovers something that changes kind of his destiny and he embarks on this journey with his father to find this sage to help illuminate what it is and to kind of see how it, he can use it or, you know, figure out exactly what effect it will have on his destiny and the destiny of the other people in this fantasy land that this story takes place in. I wouldn't want to give it too much weight, but what happens is along the way, the young boy is forced to murder somebody to defend his father, try to prevent him from getting killed. And then kind of a spoiler, but he loses his father anyway, three of the three quarters of the way through the story and has to carry on with what he realizes his destiny is without anybody helping him. But earlier in the book, I'm discovering as I reread it, there are moments where he learns, you know, like we all do as we, it's essentially about the journey from like sort of youth to adulthood. And we all learn, you know, the shattering of the illusions that we have about our parents and how they're just, you know, people like us and not perfect. And so he figures out kind of early in the book that there are things, there are things that he's going to have to do himself in order for him to, you know, come through the experience. And then later that happens to him in a much more literal and a much more dramatic way than he realized. You know, so I just remember trying to write. And for me, that was a spiritual journey. I was trying to have that character undergo a transformation from being a uh, an immature young man to, in essence, a man with maturity who was able to take charge of his own destiny, I guess. <clears throat> so I remember doing that. And then a second novel is one that I wrote. My second novel I never published. And it was about three men and one of them was a priest. And the story was called Little Fathers. The, the other two men were fathers and the priest was a literal, you know, like a father, a Catholic priest. And early in that story, through flashback, you learn that the Catholic priest had the chance to do something when he was sort of newly frocked to help administer to someone spiritually. And because he had like kind of a limited and a flawed knowledge of his own vocation, including some of the technical details of what he could do and couldn't do. He screwed that opportunity up and didn't end up ministering to the person in an effective way. And so you learn that by flashback and later in this novel, which isn't a great novel, but I'm, but I was sort of proud of it. Um, the priest essentially gets the opportunity to do it again. And he's able to, sort of redeem himself through performing a similar action when he's much more sure of himself and his ministry to somebody else in the book. And I remember trying to take that character 
of a priest on that kind of a journey to some form of redemption without being a priest, <laughs> you know, and both experiences were quite difficult. You know, those were both really difficult stories to write. Obsidian was hard for a lot of reasons, just plotting and fantasy and world building and all that stuff. But yeah, I, rem I remember just kind of trying to fashion a spiritual journey in both stories that didn't seem hokey or ridiculous. I don't know if I really got there, but I remember appreciating how difficult that is to do. I guess I'll leave it there. Yeah, I can imagine because, you know, if you set out, you know, however consciously to try to, you know, grapple with some bigger questions, spiritual themes, however you want to put it, I could see wanting to, you know, the difficulty of wanting to create a story that's engaging in itself in this, the actual story that you're telling. It also tries to take on some of these themes, but avoids, you know, not in a way that's been done a hundred million times or avoids some of the cliches or, you know, like take Obsidian, for example, you know, it's sort of like this adventure story slash maybe a little bit of a quest tale. You know, there's a there's a creature in it that he has to do battle with. There's a, you know, like you said, a sage or a prophet figure. And these are well-known figures and tropes in a way. And to try to approach those. Yeah. You know, that well, well, well-worn territory in an, in an interesting and somewhat original way would be really, you know, daunting. And then with the little fathers, I, I read these both and I. But I barely remember the Little Fathers because it's been a really long time. But I know that they were touching in that story much more contemporary. It's not fantasy or anything like that. But it touched on some struggles that, you know, real people were having in our life or people we know or people, you know, we all know have, you know, struggles, whether, you know, that are of grave import, whether it's, you know, you're wrestling, you're losing a calling in some way or, or a marriage is falling apart or you're maybe not being a successful parent, whatever it will be, whatever it may be, you know, these are, again, these are subjects that you want to, you want to be able to give the right weight, but not come up with a cheesy or silly or, or stupid, you know, treatment of. So, you know, I guess in some ways, you know, it's setting the bar high for yourself when you try to grapple with some of these questions. Yeah, and I remember, I mean, and it just makes me appreciate all the books we've discussed today, just heading towards an ending here, you know, of, of the, you know, uh, it's not very facile or simple to try to construct a believable spiritual progression, you know, and I remember, you know, with, with Obsidian, there was a little more leeway, right, because it was a real sort of work of fantasy, and I felt like I had you know, first of all, I was working in all those very common tropes. And secondly, I could do whatever the hell I wanted in a way. And just, you know, um, and the book with the priest in it was a little bit different. Um, but I remember, and I don't want to be sound too cheesy or, or weird here, but I remember, you know, I think each, just as a fiction writer, I think each book or story comes to you as a bit of a gift in a way from, in my opinion, from like a creative spirit, you know, God to me, but like somebody that I'm working to emulate in a sense. And then when you get to the end of it and finish it, it's kind of like a, 
your own spiritual journey you went on. That's how I feel, you know, and it feels like kind of a blessing, even if nobody reads it. I remember sort of experiencing a weirdly blessed feeling, John, that the character's journey sort of overlapped a little bit with my own. And I was obviously grieving our dad a lot, you know, when we were, when I was working through reshaping that book after he had died. But I also felt in a strange way, there was a gift there somewhere that I could feed my own experience and sort of heart into the, into this work that I felt was an effective way to use some of those feelings. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'm getting to it, but it was a strange confluence of, my own life and the grief that we were going through and, and just my artistic journey as well. So that, you know, that's part of why I wanted to bring it up. It's, you know, you know, one never knows what goes into the generation of some of these books, you know, but um, just and the quick commercial here is you cannot get the book, little fathers. I didn't publish it because it was not, I, I had personal reasons for not publishing it. I still have it, but it's not available. But the book Obsidian is available and you can buy it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other online retailers. Here endeth the commercial. There you go, folks. So Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say are we uh, I think we've finished up here. You wanna take a, a quick break and then talk about books we're reading? Because I have a really cool one. <laughs> that I'm excited to tell you about that you have never heard me mention. So uh, if you're cool with that, let's listen to a little voice panda and then come back and talk about what we're going to read unless you have something else to say. Uh, only this. I, I'm, all, I'm always up for a little more panda. <laughs> all right. Voice panda it is. Take it away. John I I'm too excited I'm going to go first and then I'm going to ask you to go after me in terms of what you're going to read next and then could would you mind teasing episode 48 for our listeners no I'll just do the tease because I haven't figured out what I'm reading next so I'll just I'll spare you the trouble there oh okay well do you want uh screw it you want to do that first no, you go ahead and mention mention what you have coming up, and then I'll 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 follow that up with the with the tease, and we'll be done. All right, let's do it. Uh, so, John, I'm I'm excited, but you're going to be like, what? <laughs> but I'm excited about this, um, and I'll have to tell you more about it offline. So, my next book is is actually on my reading list for the year, but I don't think I've ever mentioned it. It's a memoir, and it's called "So You Want to Be a Teacher," <laughs> and it was written by. Um, 
Peter Kravitz. Why am I excited about this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Peter Kravitz is a writer for Silver Sage Magazine, which is a magazine that I write for. And I met him in person coming up on two years ago. We had the only summit of Silver Sage writers at the publisher's house here in the Philadelphia area. This guy, Peter Kravitz, was there. And he had written a couple articles for Silver Sage that I enjoyed. Turns out he's a lifelong educator. Um, and that's what his memoir is about. He's like a high school teacher and like kind of like a John Irving kind of thing. It was like a wrestling coach and like a high school teacher. But he also spent a long period of time as a, a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. So, <laughs> and this is about the most, Peter Kravitz is about the most Philly guy I have ever met in my entire life. You know, he's really dry. You know, he's like really uh, blunt. And um, his writing style is um, exactly like that. It's so Philadelphia, but it's like, but he has a really interesting style. It's very terse and dry, um, but actually has some kind of, you know, when you get to the end of one of his articles, you're like, you're kind of like a little like, you know, was I moved by that? I'm not even really sure. You know, and he has this tremendous sense of humor. And he wrote this memoir um, called So You Want to Be a Teacher that he found this little publisher to publish it this year. And he published the first chapter in Silver Sage magazine. And I thought it was hilarious and interesting. And it was about him showing up. So he did. He's from Philly. He lives in the West now, but he did all his his teaching. He literally broke his teeth teaching at three of the like the hardest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, New York to teach in. And he suffered like a brain illness and had like a literally like a lobotomy, <laughs> you know, like or some kind of lobotomy. And this memoir is about him going into Brooklyn, New York and these three terrible neighborhoods and his time as a teacher there uh, having no idea what he was doing or what he was up against and being from Philadelphia on top of it. <laughs> and it's just, um, but from what I know of his writing style, I kind of can't wait to read it. Really like reporter, terse, rye Philadelphia. And if that's not enough, I cracked the book open when I got it a couple of days ago. It had one of the best epigraphs I think I've ever read. <laughs> it's just hilarious. I don't even know what it means. But it was for the first it was in front of the first chapter and it's and it said, uh, I gotta get this right. I'd rather have a battle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> and that and the the source of that quote is Tom Waits, the singer Tom Waits. <laughs> and I thought that was absolutely hilarious. I don't even know what that means, you know. But it was something about the alliteration and the light. Rather have a battle ahead of me than a frontal lobotomy. I said that that is funny. So anyway, that's my next book. It's called So You Want to Be a Teacher. And I'm really looking forward to it, if you can't tell. Wow. That's a that's a real curveball for sure. Um, yeah. And it's kind of interesting that you that you know the guy. So that should be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, to be continued. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Well, as I mentioned before, I don't I don't know. I haven't figured out yet exactly what I'm reading next. So uh you know, sorry to disappoint all, all you <laughs> listeners <laughs> not knowing what I'm going to read following the book I'm reading now. But that yeah, does, I mean, that's a, that's a crushing blow, John. So it really, I hope it really you got is. something good. 
I, I know that brings us to a lot of that brings disappointment to a lot of people. But yeah, I got something good, and that's what we're going to be doing for episode forty-eight of the Book Exchange podcast, oh, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're gonna, you know, talk about curveballs. We're gonna take a curveball with this with the podcast. We haven't had an episode sort of like this one in quite a while. We've been dealing with a lot of fiction and novels. So uh, our next episode, we're going to talk about our favorite collection collections of essays, um, which I think will be, and that's that's really, that's it. You know, it could be, that's the only parameter there is, but we're going to talk about sort of the, the art of the essay and what are some of the best, most memorable essay collections that we can recall reading and, and why. So I think that's going to be, you know, as always, will take us off in many, many different directions. I can already think I'm just dying to let our listeners know about or or uh, discuss with them if they've already read them. So uh, I think that's going to be really cool. So really looking forward to that one. And that's that's what's coming up uh, in a couple of weeks on the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, too. John's going to lead that show and he is going to lead intellectually as well. I can assure our listeners right now because he's probably read a lot more essay collections than I have, but I know I have some real favorites and I know I'm going to bring in titles that are not going to be on his list necessarily. So it's going to be really interesting. And we have Moldover fiction for quite a while here. So it's time to do some nonfiction. That's where John really shines. Actually he's good on both, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So that's what's coming up next. And uh, John, if you don't have anything else, I think that brings us to a close here on episode 47. All I have is a thank you for everybody who is listening to the show and has supported the show in the past. So, Jude, it was fun. Look forward to the next time. Yep. Thanks, John. And don't forget to check out the description of the episode and use those resources to reach out to the Book Exchange Twins if you have anything to say. Take care, everybody. See ya.